for making us part of your week. This semester we are studying the book of Acts, subtitled this, um, Going and Growing Together. This is the story of how Jesus grows his community, brings people to himself, connects them to one another. And we've seen that over the first six or seven chapters. So much so that last week this community has grown so much that the apostles, there's 12 of them, had to appoint seven helpers. And uh, the seven helpers were immediately put to work caring for people in need. And we recognize pretty quickly after that, they also share the apostles' work. They, they teach and preach. One of those guys is named Stephen. And in a chapter we're going to skip today, in chapter 7, uh, we see that Stephen's quite a preacher. Pretty much irrefutable. He stands up and preaches this amazing sermon in chapter 7 of Acts. You should go read it sometime. It really makes sense of the whole Bible and the way the Bible fits together and how it's all about Jesus. Um, but it does not go over well. Uh, it goes off over about as bad as it can. Uh, at the end of chapter 7, he is, uh, he's put on trial and he's stoned. He's executed. And so we've, we've gone from the church having favor with the people to the authorities not being so happy and threatening them, to the authorities arresting them, to the authorities deciding we've got to kill them. And, uh, and that's where we pick up today in chapter 8. How will this community respond now to suffering? How will they respond to discomfort? And the question for them and for us is, what does it look like to live faithfully for Jesus? Can we maintain our faith in the face of suffering? Can we retain our joy in the midst of discomfort? So I'm going to be reading uh, parts of chapter 8, beginning of verse 1. And Saul approved of his, ex- of his execution, that's Stephen's execution, okay? And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was much joy in that city. But the, oops, I'm going to skip verse 9, sorry. Skipping verse 9 and moving down to verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. And now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before which shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In this humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away. From the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. 
And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Great Father, we ask you show us great things in your word. Show us, Lord Jesus, uh, your greatness and your goodness. And uh, if it's really possible to have joy in this broken world. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, uh, I'm going to ask some of you to out yourselves. Um, who likes classical music? Good. Who likes it enough to know Beethoven's Ode to Joy? Who likes it enough to be able to hum out loud for us right now, Beethoven's Ode to Joy? Come on, come on. All right. I need, you, you've got each other. You've got each other. All right, ready? One, two, three. You're doing it. This is for everyone else, by the way. All right, stop. All right, so that's Beethoven's Ode to Joy. Uh, A few years ago, uh, a guy named Connor Oberst, uh, writing for Bright Eyes, uh, decided to write a song called Road to Joy. And he put it to that tune, Ode to Joy. I was actually going to attempt to like halfway sing the lyrics of that song while you were doing that. <laughs> but I came to the conclusion this was like super high risk, very low reward. <laughs> and uh, it's not worth it. Not worth it. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I'll, I'll read you some of the lyrics. Um, like, like most of Mr. Ober's stuff, it, it It's uh, not particularly joyful. Uh, The sun came up with no conclusion. Flowers sleeping in their beds. The cemeteries humming. I'm wide awake, it's morning. I have my drugs, I have my woman. They keep away my loneliness. My parents, they have their religion, but sleep in separate houses. I read the body count out of the paper, and now it's written all over my face. No one ever planned to sleep out in the gutter. Sometimes that's just the most comfortable place. All right, and this is his road to joy, okay? Uh, Connor Oberst is admitting, and I think quite honestly, which is why I like him, that uh, we're all on the road to joy. We're all looking for things that bring us joy. His parents sought that in religion. He decides he's going to look for it in drugs and relationships. And he also admits that the road to joy is fraught with suffering, whether it's brokenness in your own life or in the world out there if you're trying to find joy you're going to encounter suffering challenges and uh, that's what we find in our text today we're on the road in this text we're moving if you haven't noticed we're moving we're on the road and as we do so we find suffering we find some people that are responsible for that suffering and we find the reality of broken bodies and broken hearts and broken relationships and it raises this overwhelming like unavoidable question, can you really have joy in this broken world? Not some imaginary spiritual world that you have in your head, but in the middle of this broken world right here, can we really have joy? And we're going to see this uh, evening that uh, Jesus is at work through the gospel, bringing joy in the midst of discomfort. Okay? And uh, it's not just some abstract principle. We're going to see it in the nitty-gritty of life in three different groups of people, uh, among the devastated and among the despised and among the distant. All right. So first, the devastated. And, and that is uh, my way of summing up 
how we find the church in the first couple of verses here. The, the word church is used, uh, I think, for the first time here in chapter 8, verse 1. It's not a word that shows up before now. Um, and it, it, it means those that are called together by God. They're called together by God. And so the first time it's used, that's what it means. And the called together ones are immediately scattered. That's what's happening here in verse 1. Those that are called together are scattered in these verses. And uh, the precipitating event is the testimony and stoning of Stephen. The text tells us that the, the day Stephen is stoned, a great persecution breaks out. The storm breaks, the dam breaks, and they are scattered widely. And uh, what we need to recognize is that, first of all, this is, this is a great wound to the church. Not the persecution so much. We'll get to that in a moment. But what happens to Stephen? He wasn't just anybody. Um, he, he was a, a, an appointed, um, apt, well-regarded, gifted carer. We saw that in chapter 6. He cared for that community well. But he was an exceptional speaker. We see that in chapter 7. And uh, you sort of get a sense of how special he was. Hinted at in verse 2 when it says, Devout men uh, buried him and made great lamentation over him. Now, that seems pretty nondescript, and of course they would. But uh, no, if you're publicly stoned at this time, that's been sanctioned by the religious leaders, you're not allowed to celebrate this man's life and death. You're not allowed to commemorate him in this way. The great lamentation is probably 30 to 40 days of official recognition, saying he was a righteous man. So these devout men, and it's not necessarily clear that these are Christians, it could just be like devout Jewish people saying, no, he was righteous, and what y'all did was wrong. It's, it's very brave of them, and an altogether uh, important admission that the church has lost a very important person. This is a huge loss for them. They are wounded. But also we see in verse 3 that they're weak. They're weak. Uh, one man, Saul, is given the authority to, uh, to ravage the church. See that word? I don't think it appears anywhere else in the New Testament to ravage the church. I can't read that word without, because it's a very serious word. You know, he has the, the authority to go into people's homes and take them away from their families. Husbands and wives, and they're put in jail. But I, I can't help but think of the word and laugh, because when I think of ravaging, I think of the ravagers in Guardians of the Galaxy. And then I think of the ravagers, I think of Taserface. And, uh, but yeah, you know, they're not just out to steal. They want to intimidate. They want to intimidate. They want to, they want to strike fear into people's hearts. And uh, that's what Paul wants to do. He's not just out to slow this thing down. This is not a speed bump. He wants to crush this community. He wants to put an end to it right now. In his mind, this is a false religion. It needs to be exterminated. He is trying to kill this thing right now before it grows anymore. And the church seemingly is weak. They can't do anything about it. Um, so this group of believers those called together by Jesus. They're devoted to him, but they seem weak in the face of this persecution. They're devoted, but they're devastated. Okay, now the question is, is there joy here? And uh, I think there is. It's not really clear. It's not really super clear that there is. It's clear with the other ones that that it is. Each one of the other accounts we'll read tonight ends with joy. This one doesn't seem to, but I still think it's there. I think it's there in verse 4. When, when we're told that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is not the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. 
This is not the hired preacher folks that are going out preaching the word. This is everyday moms and dads, families who have to flee Jerusalem for safety. And as they go, what do they do? They can't help but share the message that got them kicked out of Jerusalem to begin with. Isn't that crazy? I mean, they're being kicked out for sharing this message. So as they're running for it, what do they do? Well, they share the message. Why? Well, you could say they're gluttons for punishment. Probably not. I would say it's because they believe it and they can't help themselves. That's the nature of joy. When you discover something's true and beautiful and good, you can't help but talk about it. And that's what's going on. They have a joy that leads them to share despite their circumstances. They're sharing on the run. And they're on the run. Um, you know, I don't know if any of you have ever been evicted before. Anyone ever been evicted? You're not going to admit that. Well, I have. <laughs> it sucks. And you're really reminded of your weakness here. And, uh, and nevertheless, they go with joy uh, sharing the good news. There's a pretty good illustration, a, a, a sort of an analogy of what I think is going on here with Paul and the church. And it's the Grinch. Okay, the Grinch... Hang with me, don't stop laughing. Um, the Grinch is out not just to steal a few Christmas trees. He's out to destroy Christmas, right? He takes everything. He doesn't want to just speed bump Christmas. No, he wants them crying in the morning. He, he's listening for the wails, the weeping, right? He thinks this will be the end. And, and when he hears the sound of, of Christmas carols that morning, he, he realizes he failed and that Christmas was something different. And uh, if Saul expects that what he's doing is going to end the movement, despite his ravaging, he's going to be in for a surprise. Because as they flee, they're still sharing the good news. Let's talk for a moment about your joy. Diagnostic question. Some of you are thinking, like, I don't have any. Well, it's good to know. Okay. Got it. Uh, is your joy, if and when you have it, dependent on your success and your security? That is, you having it together, which is you being in control. Okay? Can you only be joyful when you're in control? Or do you have a joy that can rise above the circumstances? And that persists when you're weak and out of control. It really is the only question. That, that first one is a joy that depends on you. Deep down, you're saying, I've got this. I've got me. So long as I've got me, taking care of me, I can have joy. The second one, on the other hand, rests in joy because it knows that God has you, that Jesus has you. I don't have to have it all together because Jesus has me. It's completely different. And that joy doesn't have to go away. That joy is possible even for those that are being devastated. All right, uh, let's look about the despised real quick. These, these folks that are scattered, uh, one of them is Philip, and he ends up somehow in the city of Samaria. And if you're a faithful Jew, this is not somewhere you would want to go. Because these are the despised Samaritans. 
he finds himself in verse 5 among the despised Samaritans. And they're despised largely because they're different. We'll talk about that real quickly. Uh, the Samaritans were different both uh, in race and in religion. But it wasn't always the case. This is the old northern kingdom. This is the Old Testament stuff. They used to be the one whole people of God in Israel. And uh, they decided they want to do things their own way. They set up their own little kingdom. And pretty quickly it went off the rails. And then they were conquered and carried off into exile and brought back and repopulated. And when that happened, they basically decided, we can just do sort of what we want and marry whoever we want. And so they really became, a, from a Jewish standpoint, a mixed race of Jewish people marrying foreigners, which was not like necessarily forbidden, unless you were marrying a pagan who didn't believe what you did. And that's what was happening. And as that happened, their religion changed, became very syncretistic. A little bit of Judaism, they believed in the Pentateuch, with a little bit of everything else around. We'll just take whatever the neighbors have. And before long, you have a, a religion in Samaria that's completely different than the Jewish one that, uh, that they used to believe. And uh, this really uh, sort of continues to form and, until about 400 years before now, uh, they are so entrenched and opposed to one another, they don't talk to each other. They're enemies. Jews and Samaritans distrust one another and dislike one another. You, you might remember the account where Jesus is passing through Samaria and stops at a well and asks this woman who's getting water, like, can I have a drink? And her like, first thought is, Jews don't talk to Samaritans. Remember that? Like, why are you taught, y'all don't do this. Why are you doing this? Because they despised each other. They hated one another. Um, and uh, what we see about this community, even though they're different and they're despised, they, they, they're trusting in this new, different, syncretistic, mixed religion. It, it's not saving them in any way from suffering. And in verse 7, they're suffering physically, like we all do eventually. hate to tell you that. It's coming. Um, but also spiritually. We read that they're being spiritually oppressed. They're unclean spirits. They are uh, at work in them. And uh, I think what we have here is a picture of a community of a group of people that have, you know, they, they didn't just, when you stop believing in God, it's, it's not that you just usually start believing in nothing. It's actually that you'll start believing in anything. And that's what happens here. In, in the section we didn't read, there's a magician here, and, and he is well-followed. He is super popular. And, you know, if you, if you take people that are suffering and you make enough crazy promises to them, they might believe anything. And that's what's happening here. Um, and so they, they are increasing in their suffering. They have hope that things are going to happen for them. They don't. And uh, it's, I think if you've ever seen this, uh, I've seen this. If you, you grow up among the poor, you see this. Uh, it's heartbreaking. But, but God, even though God's people despise them, uh, God doesn't. And he moves toward them and he's at work. And he's at work in the person of Philip, who for some reason thinks it's a good idea to go to Samaria and preach. No one does this. You like walk into the enemy base and start preaching in verse 5. This is what he does. And, uh, and then he talks about the Christ. That's what it says in verse 6, verse 5, the Christ. That's really formal language for the promised king. That's the Messiah. The promise from Second Samuel 7 and Psalm 2 that David would have a king that would be the promised one to come. Well, the Samaritans weren't looking for a king. They believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books. They weren't looking for this. We're not interested in your Messiah. I don't care about your king. They listen anyway. 
He's preaching them a message they don't even want to hear, and they listen anyway. And God is at work in him, working signs, it says in verse 6. God's doing all kinds of amazing things to them, and they listen, and they hear. And we read in the text that they have joy. They have the joy of restoration and reconciliation. Their bodies are healed, restored. This is a, a small picture, if you will, in life of the way God renews. We saw this in chapter 3. When he heals someone, it's a mini picture of the way that God gives new life to people. But he also reconciles. These are people that left, they left God the Father long ago. And God's people in them have been at odds for hundreds of years. And here in a day, through the message of Jesus, they are brought back to the Father. They're now part of the one family of Jesus. That's reconciliation. It's beautiful. And the text tells us that there is joy They have joy because of what Jesus has done there. Here's a question for you. Because because part of being a human is part of judging other people, unfortunately. It's this. So you might have to go deep into your hard heart, and uh, this is the kind of things we don't tell people usually. But who have you written off because they're different? Who have you written off deep down in your heart? You just don't like them because they're different. And it could be a number of things. It could be that you're cool and they're not, so you don't even want to talk to them because you might get infected by their non-coolness. Um, like no one actually will admit that we think that way, but sometimes we act that way. Or maybe you know you're not cool, and they're super cool, and they're cute, so you hate them. Um, you just sort of assume the worst about them. Or uh, maybe you're normal and they're weird. So you just write them off. Or maybe you're weird and being weird is good and they're normal, which means they're boring and shallow. So I just don't care about them. Or maybe they get sloppy drunk on Thursday and Friday nights and you think there's nothing that God will do in their life. Or maybe they're super uptight and take everything way too seriously and it's just a super drag on you. Whatever the case is, who is it that's so different from you that you just write off and say, there is no way God would want to draw them near. Friends, this text right here, these people, this history, means you need to stop and think, not only, not only might God want to draw them near, he might, he might want you to be the person through whom they come near. It's just like God the Father to use you Someone that despises them, to draw them close. So joy is possible among the devoted that are you know weak and, and being devastated. It's among those who are despised. Uh, joy is also possible among those who are distant. This is the last one, and in some ways the most extravagant. So we, we see uh, joy uh, among those that are weak, the church, and among those that are wayward, if you will, with the Samaritans. And then among those that are just downright weird. Because this guy in verse 27 and 28, the way he's described, it's pretty strange. Okay, uh, It's hard to get a composite picture of this, but he is an Ethiopian, which means he's a black African. That's pretty clear. He's a eunuch, if you're not familiar. That, that means he has been castrated. Okay, <laughs> he, is a, he is an outsider. Um, he, he is missing the necessary operating equipment that most of us uh, carry throughout life. And he's castrated because 
as a member of the royal court, he is not trusted because he's a guy. And you don't want to potentially ruin the purity of the royal line. Like, I don't trust you not to sleep with the queen, so I will, I will, I will uh, take care of that possibility. Um, so he was castrated. Everyone take a deep breath. <laughs> okay. Um, he is in charge of the queen's treasury. So not trusted not to sleep with the queen, but trusted with all the money. Um, so highly trusted. And it gets even stranger. Comes to Jerusalem to worship. That's, that's important. He comes to Jerusalem to worship. I don't think this is a hobby. This is an indication that this man is a black African eunuch Jew or black Jewish Ethiopian eunuch. Um, and chances are he probably grew up in a family that was Jewish. Like they, they embraced the religion of Judaism. Um, that is a pretty extravagant human being. I've seen something like this, actually, a little bit. I grew up in very, very, very rural Virginia. Very. And uh, on one occasion after college, I was working at this children's home, and I had to drive down to the middle of nowhere and pick up this Episcopalian Anglican bishop, whom I didn't know. And uh, so I arrived, and I met the right Reverend Nathaniel Garang. My job was to grab lunch with him and drive him back to this children's home where I worked, where he was going to speak that night. Well, the right Reverend Nathaniel Garang is an impressive human being. He's about two inches taller than me. And uh, we stopped for lunch. This is rural West Virginia, like rural Virginia. We stopped at a Ryan Steakhouse in the middle of nowhere, rural Virginia. And the two of us walked in. The right Reverend Nathaniel Garang is as dark as midnight and dressed in a blood red robe, head to toe. It was like something out of Revelation walked into Ryan Steakhouse. It was freaking awesome. It was just beautiful. And it, almost that kind of strange extravagance is what we have in this text. Like, who, what is going on here? Um, but it, despite all that, the thing we need to see is that this is a man who's excluded. He is outside. He's a strange man in his own land. You know, it's not like a unit club. Um, he has no family. His, fan, his religion, he's Jewish, involves him having to travel a large distance all the way to the temple in Jerusalem. And once he gets there, he cannot go in. Eunuchs have no access. You can't get in the temple. He has no access. He is excluded. Despite all his devotion, despite his desire, he cannot get in. And uh, I think that's a fairly good summary of what it means to be him. He experiences distance from God's people, maybe even from God himself. And the beautiful thing in this text is that God closes the distance. It's God that closes the distance. Think about the ways he does so. First of all, this man has the text. He has the copy of Isaiah. He has a Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. In his, he can read it. it. It's a miracle, friends, that we have a Bible in our own tongue. God gave it to us. And so God's reaching out and giving him the text so he can know he can know the Lord. And then he gives him an instructor, Philip. <laughs> Verse 26 trips me out. Hey, um, go down there to the middle of nowhere, basically is what it says, to a desert place. Um, this is a desert rendezvous in the middle of nowhere. 
And, and once he gets there, the spirit's like, yeah, yeah, that chariot. Go to that chariot. Like there were any other chariots, probably. Um, and uh, the picture here is God takes Philip to the middle of nowhere for this man. He has no other business there. This is a divine appointment for the sake of this man. This is God closing the distance. And when Philip gets there, he finds that this man's heart is already ready. I, I, love, I love what happens here when Philip says, Do you understand what you're reading? And his reply is so humble. How can I unless someone teaches me or instructs me? I'm going to take a moment here to say, if you're here and uh, you're not quite sure you believe this, you're not quite sure what you think about the Bible or Christianity, I want you to know that you're completely free. I would even encourage you to be this honest. Whether it's here, afterwards, in a small group, in a one-on-one setting, you can say, I don't understand. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Like, I sort of liked some of the things you said, but I don't, I don't get it. Because this is not a contest, friends. It's not, this is not your classes. We want you to understand. Uh, God sent me here. <laughs> That's the only reason I'm here. Sent her here, sent Zinni here, to help you understand. Um, that's why we want to be here. So if you have questions, ask them. This is why we do Q&A after a large group like last week. So you can know that your questions are always welcome. And I think God loves this kind of attitude, this kind of openness, this kind of humility. Okay. And God meets with him and the, res- the result is joy, the joy of redemption. Philip preaches the good news about Jesus in verse 35. The eunuch believes he's baptized and what this means is all his journeys to Jerusalem are over. I mean, he can go if he wants to. But he's been making these devoted efforts to get in. And they're over. Because Jesus has closed the distance. It's no longer his works. It's no longer his devotion. Jesus has gone to the cross to forgive his sins and bring them in. I mean, he knows that. This is what baptism is about. Your sins have been washed away, man. You don't need to make any more sacrifices. Your sins have been washed away. And I know you went to the temple, you couldn't get in, but you're part of the family now. You've been brought in. You're one of mine. I'm I'm clothing you in my righteousness. So what baptism looks like. He's wearing the family uniform. He belongs. He's been excluded his whole life, and now he belongs to Jesus and his people. And we see him walk away in verse 39. Well, he's riding on his chariot, I suppose. Uh, Rejoicing. And uh, I, can, I can say as someone uh, that by nature is not a joyful person. Everyone says, yes, we know. I, amen. That um, were it not for this truth, that God closes the distance, that God the Father is the one that makes us right with him, it's not our efforts, that there would be no joy in my life for the most part. I mean, I was a pretty miserable human being before God showed me that he loved me enough to send his son for me. And, and now I know that he loves me. He's forgiven me. That I, I can't mess this up. That he's done all of this for me because he loves me. That's a lasting joy, my friends, that no one can take away. And so uh, whether you're, you're one of those that's been devastated or you feel like you're the weird despised ones or you're the really weird distant one, Joy is possible. But there's one more thing about this text I want to say real quick, and I think it's awesome. Uh, It's this, that the good news of Jesus not only makes joy wherever you are possible, 
it makes it possible for you to be the kind of person, like in verse 4, that takes the good message to others and makes joy possible for them. It makes it possible for you to be a good news sharer, joy bearer to others. It's amazing that he enables us to do this. Um, That's what the Ethiopian eunuch probably did. That's what those who were scattered in verse 4 did. And uh, a few years ago, uh, a friend of mine in RUF shared this story uh, about a kid in Minnesota. Um, In December of 2002, a nine-year-old named Mitch Chapakis um, was uh, spending his last months in a hospital in Minnesota. He had uh, bone cancer. He was terminally ill. And uh, he decided, as Christmas approached, to withdraw his entire life savings, which was $6,000, which is did pretty well, actually. And uh, he did this because he wanted, with his dad, to put all the money into envelopes and go door-to-door on his pediatric oncology wing to give everyone in the hospital, like on that floor with him, all the kids like him, a Christmas gift to, to bring joy to those that were suffering like him. It's pretty amazing, right? And when he gets back to the room, he tells his dad joyfully, this is the best day of my life. Do you hear that? I mean, it makes sense though, doesn't it? The joy of sharing the good news with others, friends, it gives you joy. The joy of giving away something that's so beautiful and brings joy to others, it brings joy to you. Uh, Right after he said that, he said to his dad, uh, Dad, we have to do this again next year. And his dad looked at him a little funny and then said, Son, you're not going to be here next year. So the, the kid, a little, probably a little less emotionally than me, probably because he's more emotionally mature than me at age nine, um, <laughs> looked his dad in the eye and made him pinky swear, Okay, then you'll have to do it. And he's been doing it ever since. Uh, this is what we get to do. We get to do this. If you believe this, friends, we have a message of joy of how God has closed the distance for us and made joy possible, even in the midst of all of our mess. And we get to share it with others. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. We should do it. And uh, we thank Jesus for the work he's done to to make it possible. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you help us see a little more clearly uh, all that you've done uh, to make us right with the Father. 